Awesome. Let's give him a hand. Thank you, Tracy. Amen. Oh, isn't that true? We owe all to Christ, our whole lives, everything that we are. It's been a privilege playing with you guys this summer, so I thank you also for that. I'm going to get my thank yous out of the way early. Thank you, T.O., wherever you are over there. Thank you so much just for this whole summer. It's been great working with you, learning from you, everything. Uh, Pastor Dave as well, uh, Brother Dennis, Scott, love you guys. It's been great working with you guys. Um, Deacons as well, Aaron Cooper, thank you for everything you've helped me with this summer. Um, And I just thank you, church family, just for your generosity and love the whole summer. I've been feeling it. You guys are great. Yeah, give yourselves a hand. Mr. Pearson's clapping. (laughs) The world we live in is a world of diversity and change. Cultures change, ideals change, social constructs change. Indeed, ever since the dawn of time, humanity has been under an evolution of sorts. Perhaps not biologically, but certainly culturally. This 21st century America is quite removed from, say, ancient Rome. We've traded lords for celebrities. Uh, We've traded um, slaves for employees. And uh, the gladiator's sword for a laced pigskin, right? (laughs) Nations rise and fall, um, values morph, icons lose their, their significance. And the fact of this change has been an issue for the church ever since its inception. How are we to grapple with a world that is ever-changing when we hold the truths that are unyielding, that are resolute, that are constant? More specifically, and perhaps more to the point, how are Christians supposed to interact with individuals who do not believe as we do, those who change with the times? Certainly, the authors of the Bible were not thinking about Facebook and coffee shops and a representative democracy when they wrote the New Testament. And most certainly, they could never conceive of interacting with hipsters and yuppies, Republicans, and Democrats. Yet even in a comparison that spans two millennia, you cannot help but see the striking similarities that remain constant in everyday human life. Work, play, fame, family, money, all these span generations and cultures. The names and the artifacts change, but the human condition remains the same. The ancient church father, Augustine, described two cities. The city of God, to which belongs his children, those chosen before the foundations of the earth, and the city of man, to which belong all those who make themselves enemies of God. But how are such contrasting cities, or perhaps better, kingdoms, supposed to inhabit the same space? Uh, Through history, many groups have tried to um, release this tension in a multiplicity of ways. Uh, An ancient Jewish sect known as as the Essenes um, went off and hid into the mountains so as to um, separate themselves from the touch, the soiled touch of society. The Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages sent its warriors on bloody crusades, yes, out of greed, but even more so to rid the earth of what they thought was the kingdom of man and to advance the kingdom of God. Perhaps an example a little closer to home, well-meaning Christians in America today make every effort and obsess over legislating morality and miss the opportunities given them on a daily basis. 
please don't misunderstand me, laws that are aligned with God's word, the word of truth, are certainly better than the alternative. But to believe that the kingdom of God can be ushered in through the power of legislation or political maneuvering is a misplaced notion. So how does one belonging to the kingdom of God, a kingdom of truth, the kingdom of love, engage with another kingdom, another mindset, another lifestyle that is so vastly opposed to the true way? In extension to that, how do we as 21st century Christians of America act towards our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, our friends who do not believe the truth? Well, let's turn to Colossians chapter 4. In just a few short verses, Paul lays out a very practical set of instructions that are meant to guide our interactions with non-believers. This instruction is very clear and very applicable. Every Christian from the youngest to the oldest should take take heed to Paul's four main guidelines in regards to one of the most important types of relationships that Christians can have, that being our relationships to non-believers. Before we start, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, uh, I just thank you for this opportunity to preach your word this morning and just proclaim the truth that is in it. Uh, God, I know that... This sermon is perhaps more for me than anyone else in the room. I pray that my words this morning are your words, Father, and that I treat the text well and truthfully. I pray that the truth of your word would be presented clearly and that it would just pierce the hearts of everyone listening today. Um, We love you only because you first loved us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, in order to make sure that we're correctly oriented here in the text... Uh, Let's consider a little bit of the information in the background of the book of Colossians. As many of you are probably aware, Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written during his first Roman imprisonment. Uh, You may remember in the book of Acts, when Paul appealed to Caesar, was taken to Rome, and then was put under house arrest. That is when Paul is writing this letter. Um, The reason that Paul wrote this was likely to quell some false teachings that had arisen in the Colossian church, Uh, most likely having to do with Christ and his nature, as Paul stresses the preeminence of Christ. Um, That is to say that Christ should hold the utmost importance uh, in our lives. Uh, As was Paul's tendency, the first part of Colossians is very theological and conceptual, and then the last part of it in chapters 3 and 4 is very down-to-earth and practical. Uh, Chapters three and four are the natural outcome of putting, sorry, are the natural outcome of someone who holds Christ in, in high esteem. The preeminence of Christ, natural outcome of that. In chapter three, Christ, or in chapter three, Paul writes about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And then at the end of chapter three, he moves on to very specific relational instructions, um, instructions involving wives and husbands. Instructions involving servants and uh, their masters. Then he, uh, this carries over into chapter 4, where we find our verses today. Um, and in fact, these verses are the very last set of instructions within the book of Colossians before he moves on to some salutations and greetings. So with that being established, we're in context. Aaron Cooper is happy about that. Uh, we'll go ahead and read verses 5 and 6 of Colossians 4. It reads, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, 
making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Two quick verses, very simple instruction, uh, but it's packed to the brim with meaning. The first thing that we see in the text is the imperative command to walk in wisdom toward the outsider. The word toward is one of particular importance, uh, but before we get to that, uh, let's talk about the word wisdom. Wisdom in a broad sense simply means to be skilled at living. Knowledge is having information, uh, taking in um, just, you know, teachings. But wisdom is knowing what to do with that information that we gather. A simple example, a young child may have the information that an oven is hot, but he might not have the wisdom, he might not know what to do with that information, which is not to touch the oven. I mean, one touch and he'll get wise really quick and he'll realize I should probably not touch that next time. See, knowledge is perceiving, whereas wisdom is judging. And that's what we're talking about here. Good, sound judgment in the face of everyday circumstances, everyday human circumstances, and maybe more specifically, everyday Christian circumstances. In other words, practical wisdom. So how does this practical wisdom play a role in our interactions with non-believers? Well, let's take just a quick look at Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Uh, as a kid, this, this uh, passage absolutely stumped me when I first read it, because it seems as if the Bible contradicts itself. We read in verse 4, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like, like him yourself. Then verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. In his own eyes. I was absolutely puzzled. What does it want me to do? Is this a contradiction? I don't understand. And here's where walking in practical wisdom comes in handy. Um, having good judgment of a situation. It's figuring out whether someone is just fishing for a fight uh, or where someone is actually searching for the truth. Uh, for example, it, it does you absolutely no good to have a, an argument, perhaps a forceful one, with someone who simply is there to argue and doesn't have the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit within them, perhaps an argument about social issues or whatever it may be. It would be like punching a brick wall that like, gets harder with each time that you hit it. It's, it's not answering a fool according to his folly. Uh, but then there are other times clearly, where we should do this. And that's, that's where the wisdom comes in. It's discernment. When do I need to answer this person? When do I need to be silent? Perhaps that's a skill that is lacking uh, in our churches today. Uh, what about the word walk? Walk is a translation of the Greek word peripatete. There will be a test afterwards. I expect you all to know it. No. Um... But Greek can, or this Greek word can be translated walk, uh, but, it, but also it can be translated just to conduct one's life, uh, to behave, to live. It pertains to the sphere you, lit, the sphere you live in, the nitty-gritty, the, the reality in which one lives out their life. The idea of walking in wisdom uh, when we come into contact with non-believers is not only one of evangelism, but is also one of just everyday interaction. We should exercise sound judgment with the people we rub elbows with uh, from day to day. Now, finally, this brings us 
towards my favorite word in this verse, which is toward. Uh, It warrants some in-depth examination. It's at the tail end of this phrase. Um, What does it say? It says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Uh, Towards is a translation of the Greek word pros. I told you there would be a test. (laughs) I'm just telling you, you better know. Uh, But pros is another Greek word. It's a preposition. Um, It both has a nuance of, of purpose and of movement. As far as purpose goes, we could translate um, the word toward as for, or for the advantage of, or in the interest of. Um, We are to walk in wisdom like for the outsider. We are to have sound judgment um, for the interest of the outsider. You know, perhaps one Greek preposition isn't enough to convince you uh, that your life is lived in service to the non-believer. But was it not Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost? Uh, was it not he who lived his life for those who had not yet believed? Uh, and I quote, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Uh, was it not Paul who wished himself accursed for his own people, a nation who rejected God in the flesh? I think that it is safe to say that one of the most important things for Christians to do is to live their lives um, in service to the non-believer. We need to abandon the untrue assumption that it is us, God's children, the city of God, the kingdom of God, versus them, those who don't believe. Uh, One day, God will separate. He will separate his true children from those who are not his true children, the lambs from the goats, and will be separate for all eternity. But the thing is, we're not there yet. Right now, we live in the same world. We're, We're not separate from them yet. And as far as our knowledge goes... Everyone on earth is a potential child of God. It's not us against them. It's us in service to them. It's us for their advantage. And the key to all this is relationships, which is my first point, which is to establish relationships with non-believers. And that brings us to the second nuance of the Greek word pros. Uh, It is a nuance of movement, Toward or in the direction of, really it is a nuance of intentionality. We as Christians, uh, keepers of the gospel of truth and hope, must be moving towards non-believers. When a relationship is established and people truly get to know each other, then then they start to listen. You see, relationships breed respect. In his book, Blue Like Jazz, uh, Donald Miller tells a story of a group of Navy SEALs who were performing a covert operation. They were trying to free these hostages from this building, and they flew over in a helicopter, and they, you know, stormed the building, and they made it to the room where the hostages had been held for months. And the room was dark, and it was dank, and uh, all the hostages were huddled up uh, in the fetal position in the corner. And the SEALs stood at the door and they said, hey, we're Americans, we're here to save you, come with us. But uh, the hostages were too scared and they weren't like of a healthy mind and uh, they just didn't believe them. Um, They didn't believe that they were there to save them. So, you know, the SEALs, you know, stood there not really knowing what to do. They couldn't possibly carry them all out, that wouldn't work. Um, But one of the SEALs had an idea. He, uh, he, He put down his weapon, he took off his helmet... And he went 
and he, uh, he sat with them, he huddled with them, he, he touched them, and uh, he looked them, softened his face, looked them all in the eye, and one by one their eyes met him. And they knew that, that none of the guards there, none of the prison guards would have done this. And so he said to them, he whispered to them, you know, we're Americans and we're here to save you. Will you follow us? And so he stood up and one by one, the hostages stood up and uh, the story ends with them safely on the American aircraft carrier. Clearly, you can see the connection. Uh, We need to be engaging with the world around us. Does that mean that we need to join in sinful activities and approve of sinful behaviors to do this? Of course not. Um, Of course not. But was it not Paul who said, I have become all things to all people so that uh, by any means I might save some? Unbelievers need to know that we're here for them, that we're living for their sake. Uh, We're on their side. And how do we do that? We do that by consciously moving towards them and by establishing relationships with them, by truly caring for them. Christ cares deeply for the lost. Uh, During his ministry, he intentionally went into the environment of those who were far from God. Uh, Indeed was the incarnation, the very fact that Christ abandoned the comforts of heaven and became a man. Is that not the epitome of this directional movement toward those who did not believe? We are to live in a constant state of wisdom for the outsider, moving towards the outsider, and establishing real relationships with them. Uh, In the next part of our verse, we see that Paul goes even further. He says Christians are to make the best use of our time and our efforts towards unbelievers. This phrase quite literally means we are to gain the time or redeem the time. Simply put, it instructs us to take advantage of every opportunity to do what we've just been talking about. We are to use our time, which is my second point. Now, while this seems like a relatively straightforward instruction, how hard it is to follow. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book uh, called The Screwtape Letters. Um, And in an interesting take, and perhaps only Lewis can do, he writes from the perspective of a demon known as Screwtape, who instructs his um, nephew, Wormwood, in how to tempt an everyday Christian. And listen to what Screwtape has to say in a passage describing a Christian's slow decline towards towards inactivity. As the condition becomes more fully established, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract the Christian's wandering attentions. You no longer need a good book, which he really likes to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste time not only in conversations he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return, so that at last he may say, as one of my patients said on his arrival down here, I see that I spent most of my life in in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. Nothing is very strong, strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but but in the dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and it knows not why in the gratification of curiosities so feeble that a man is only half aware of them, in the drumming of fingers and the kicking of heels and whistling of tunes that he doesn't even like. The day and age that we live in is exactly that. Uh, We are bombarded with a steady drum of blinking lights and of new trinkets 
uh, which are designed to hold our attention for a little more than three and a half minutes. Uh, sports, celebrities, movies, television, uh, we wriggle and squirm for anything moderately interesting as a young child at the register for the toy that he sees. Perhaps America has not sold its soul to the cruel reign of evil, but perhaps the more cunning and indeed more sinister rule of entertainment. Indeed, our fear of God has been replaced with a fear of boredom. My question to you is, how often are you wasting your time? When you haven't joined a small group because you really want to keep watching Duck Dynasty, uh, something is wrong. (laughs) When you refuse to be generous with your money because you want to go out and buy a new boat, uh, something is wrong. When you don't pick up the guy who's ran out of gas on the highway because you have to make it to the 6.30 showing to the Avengers, like something is wrong with that. How often has our idol of fun overtaken our movement toward those whom God would have us to reach out to? We're supposed to use every opportunity, capitalize on all the time that we have. Uh, One quick clarification on that. The point is not to say that you should never partake in these activities Uh, The Christian life is not one of asceticism, as monks would say, and it's not one of deprivation. Uh, We are to enjoy ourselves here on the earth and relax when we need to. Um, Christ even says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. You know, if if you just put the kids to bed and you want to watch a TV show with your spouse, you know, by all means do so. Or, you know, if you're a teenager and you want to have a video game party, whatever, like, go for it, by all means. But, like, but, the moment our enjoyment is put on a pedestal and we lose sight of our true purpose on this earth, uh, by our actions we show that it's, it's all about me. Um, we have moved into the realm of self-worship um, and have, have, we've been successfully rendered ineffective, as Screwtape said. Uh, We're distracted from our true purpose. If entertainment ever comes between us and our God or us and our mission, which is, once again, to reach out to the non-believer, we need to get rid of it right then and give it up. Indeed, what a force it would be if the Christians of, of America exchanged their love of amusement for a love of the non-believer. If we took advantage of the time that was given to us. Now, you might be thinking, you know, get them, Luke. (laughs) Get those nasty Christians who worship entertainment, who waste their time, you know, with frivolous activities. You know, you go. Uh, But I feel I would only be giving you half of the truth uh, if I stopped there, half of the problem. You see, it's, it's very easy to point at bad things in people's life, such as sin, and say, that's keeping them from serving God. Um, And it's still pretty easy to point at neutral things, which people put above God and say, you know, that's also bad, and to call them out on it. Yet it is very hard to call someone out on and to identify even the good things that people do and the good things that people live for and say that is hindering their walk with Christ and hindering them from loving him with all their heart and their soul and their mind. Uh, Things such as your job, perhaps a skill, um, or even relationships These are all good things that Christians smile upon, and rightly so. They are good things. But all things that can distract us from serving our purpose. Perhaps one of the toughest of these 
Um, so tough, in fact, that Jesus spoke on, this, on the topic specifically is family. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be disciples. He cannot be my disciples. Uh, let me first establish that family is extremely important. Um, it is one of the few things that God has personally instituted on this earth, um, and it plays a crucial role in really all of the lives of Christians. Uh, now, I've heard this verse explained that our love for Christ should, should be so great that in comparison, the love for our family should look like hate. And while certainly Jesus is not championing, championing a hateful spirit, um, his words hold more meaning than a mere comparison. What Jesus is saying is that you should never use your family as an excuse not to serve God. Am I saying that you need to abandon your family and be at church five times a week serving? You know, certainly not. Definitely not that. Uh, and if that were the case, honestly, I would say that perhaps you were putting another, another idol before Christ, which is the ministry. You know, even something so noble as that can, can become a distraction. But, but what I am saying is that nothing, like absolutely nothing, whether good, bad, or otherwise, uh, should ever take the spot of lordship over our lives that is rightly deserved by Christ. Uh, if we truly believe that Je what Jesus taught us is the true way to live, uh, we should be living in that reality at all times in our life. Um, that's how we take advantage of every opportunity. Uh, there's too much at stake for Christians to get this wrong. For both our sake and the sake of non-believers, we cannot separate the time into that which is spiritual and to that which is secular. We're, we're, when you're working with Christ, uh, you know, or when you're just working, Christ is Lord over that, and, and you can use that time. Um, when, when you're with your family, Christ is Lord over that, and you can use that time. When you're paying bills, Christ is Lord over that, and you can use that time. When you're being entertained, you know, Christ is Lord over that, and you should be using that time. When we understand that, that all time is sacred, and all time is an opportunity to further God's kingdom, um, even the most mundane interactions with non-believers will become missional and serve a purpose. So we've established first, or we've said first that we're to establish relationships with non-believers. Um, in a state of wisdom, we should be living and moving toward them for their sake. Uh, we've also said that we should use our time and take advantage of every opportunity to do so um, not being distracted by any of the cares of the world, but by realizing that all our time should be used in service to Christ, no matter the activity at the moment. And now three, uh, we are to speak gracious words. Um, let's read it straight from our passage. Uh, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. The Bible has much to say on the topic of speech. Um, James writes that the tongue is a world of unrighteousness and that if anyone is able to tame it, uh, he can have control of his whole body. Proverbs states that uh, the death and life, uh, the power of that are, are in the tongue. Indeed, our speech plays perhaps the most important role in our interactions with non-Christians and people in general. It's how we communicate. It's how we understand one another. Um, and in our day, speech has evolved into a plethora of communication outlets. Um, nowadays, you don't have to be in the same hemisphere 
let alone the same room, to have a conversation with somebody. Uh, you can be communicating to people like you don't even know on Facebook and on Twitter. If you don't know what that is, good. <laughs> uh, it seems as if everyone has something to say, from topics as, triv- as trivial as the NBA Finals to national issues such as the events of Ferguson and uh, the Supreme Court ruling. Everyone seems to have um, words, an opinion, you know, some sort of speech. Uh, clearly, our tongues and our keyboards, our just communication in general, plays a huge role in our lives. A literal rendering of this verse could read, Let your words be in grace, or characterized by grace. What Paul, what Paul is trying to get across is that the how of our communication is important. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, when I was younger, I really struggled with receiving criticism, especially in the moment of my, uh, you know, when I was wrong, when I really needed the criticism. I'm the youngest child, so I learned from my brother's mistakes, and I'm perfect. So, <laughs> now, clearly, I still struggle with it. Uh, no, but I remember one time uh, when my brother, Nate, and I were just, I don't know why I remember this, but we were just walking through a Myers store. Uh, I think it was probably that one, actually. And we're just walking through it, having fun, joking around, just being brothers, as brothers do. And uh, I had done something previously that day that wasn't, that wasn't right. And Nate chose that moment to confront me about it. And in that time and place, I knew that Nate was on my team, uh, that he was on my side, that he wanted the best for me. So I had no choice but to respect him. I had no choice but to see the truth that were in his words. Uh, so what's the point? The point is, the way in which you speak truth into the lives of people matters. Not only the what, the truth of it, but the how matters. I wouldn't have, his, have accepted, or I wouldn't have been as likely to accept Nate's instructions and his criticism if, uh, if he hadn't done so with the timing that he did and done so in grace, in the gracious speech that he did. Uh, the gospel is, is offensive as it is. Really, we know that. The gospel is an offense. So let's not have our words be any more offensive than they have to be. Uh, speaking of that verse, uh, if you ever lack, lack grace in your interactions with non-believers, um, you know, don't blame their rejection of truth on the fact that the gospel is an offense. Like, we need to be completely gracious, full of gracious in our spe- or full of grace in our speech. Can I just have a quick heart-to-heart with you right now, church, on this subject? Um, if you've ever been thinking uh, when you go to church, you know, that was great, but how can I, like, apply this to my life? Just listen right here because it's about to get extremely practical. Um, yeah, just a piece of advice based on this principle of gracious speech. Uh, Facebook is a great communication tool. I use it a lot. Um, usually when I don't have somebody's phone number or something and I need to contact them, it's perfect for that. Um, you know, connecting with people who I haven't seen in a long time or perhaps who live far away, it's, it's really awesome for that stuff and I'm thankful for it. But you know what it's, what it's not good for? And that's just arguing over random issues. Uh, listen, I'll be straight up with you. Like, if you have an issue with something like somebody posted on Facebook, just call them and talk about it. Or better yet, Take them out to lunch and establish 
a relationship with them, and then you can talk about it. I understand people post things that you might not necessarily agree with, but I'm telling you, uh, Facebook and Twitter or whatever the outlet is on the internet, uh, it's just not the place for it. Like, even if you try to argue as gracious as possible, which, honestly, if we're really honest with ourselves, I don't think that's what's happening. But even if you did, if you were extremely gracious with how, you know, your arguments go, it's, it's super easy to flip your words as far as typing goes and to misunderstand and misconstrue. Um, so that was for free. That's Luke's practical application of this. But just, yeah, just think about it. I don't think it's very profitable for anyone. Uh, this brings us to the phrase seasoned with salt. Uh, salt had two main uses back in the day. Um, first, it preserved meat, and then second, or preserved food, I guess, all kinds of food. And then second, it flavored them. And with the word seasoned here, it says seasoned with salt, um, we can imply that it's talking about flavor. When you preserve meat with salt, you buried it in the salt. You didn't, you didn't season it with it. So we can say that it's, we're talking about flavor here. Um, so what's he trying to get at? The idea is uh, not only should our words to the non-believer be gracious, um, but they should also be interesting and exciting as well. Um, this, this should originate from the fact that we have a reason to be excited. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty laid-back guy. I don't get riled up too easily. Um, but, but the good news of Jesus Christ's redemption of humankind, uh, his, his extension of the gift of grace, his death on the cross is a reason to get excited. Uh, he rose from the dead. We serve a living God. That's a reason to shout, really. It's a reason to live a life um, that's pleasing to God in the presence of non-believers. Our, our words, our lives should be flavorful, interesting. All right, with that, finally we can come to the last portion, portion of our passage. We are to, you know, fourth point, know how to answer the questions non-believers have. You see, the, the assumption of this part of the verse is that people will be asking questions about your life and your faith. And this comes from the previous things we've been talking about. If we establish meaningful relationships, uh, redeeming our time for their sake, um, and interact with them in a gracious manner, especially in the face of controversial issues, um, people will get curious. You know, what's your secret? Why are you so kind towards those you disagree with, towards those who lash out at you? Why, how can you be so, you know, gracious? I've heard about Jesus before, but... The way you're behaving is different. This behavior is otherworldly. Uh, people won't understand it. It's so contrary to our default mindset, and that's why we need to do these things. That being said, if we do end up living out these guidelines, we also need to know how to answer the questions that come up. You know, what's the point otherwise? In my time of talking with non-believers, I found that uh, there are three main things that they want to know from me. First off, they, they want to know, you know, why are you talking to me about this? Uh, which is a good question. Uh, somebody's motives tells a lot about them and their message. So I tell them, you know, I believe that the message of Jesus Christ has the power to change lives. Um, I believe it has the power to pick up the broken pieces um, and mend them into something truly beautiful and pleasing. I believe that Jesus Christ teaches us to live uh, the best way to live. Uh, it is the true way that human beings were meant to live out since their um, existence. 
It's a way not heaped in condemnation, but in freedom, uh, in abundance, in, in great joy. It's not always the easiest or the least painful, but it is always the best. A way that finds its culmination in the eternal embrace of our true and loving God, as opposed to eternal isolation from all that is good. And I'm here, I have experienced this, I'm here because I found the best way to live, and I want to share that with everyone. You know, there's not really much anyone can say to that. If someone truly knows that you're on their side, that that you're looking out for them, it's hard not to respect or at least listen to what you have to say. So that's the why. Second, we need to know the what of the gospel. Great, someone understands that we're on their team. That's awesome. But what about the actual message? Now, I'm not going to go into this too much because this sermon is not instruction on how to present the gospel. Um, If you're a follower of Christ, I'm hoping that you already know his message. Uh, I mean, that's the message. God is perfect. We've sinned. We separated ourselves from God. Um, But he still loved us even when we were his enemies, sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins so that our relationship could be reconciled and that the, yeah, that relationship of creator to created could be reestablished in how it's meant to be. There it is in one really big run-on sentence. I said I wasn't going to give it to you, but I did anyway. We need to know this message, you know, front ways and back ways, inside and out. Uh, It needs to be, yeah, in our heads at all times. So that's the what, just... Yeah, just know it. And last is the the how of the gospel. Uh, Some form of this question um, I often find in the minds of non-believers. How can you believe the message of the Bible in the face of such and such an argument? Or um, how do you know that the Bible is the ultimate, uh, the absolute truth? Like, how can you know that? And my answer to the question is this. I know that the Bible is the ultimate authority of truth. Because it's the word of God. I know that it's the word of God because the Bible says so. Now, any reasoning individual would understand that that's a logical fallacy. That's circular reasoning. You know, I believe the Bible is God's word, and I believe, or I believe the Bible is true because it's God's word, and I believe it's God's word because the Bible says so. It's circular. Uh, but you see, any claim to an ultimate authority, any claim, is, has to be circular in its reasoning or else it ceases to be a claim to ultimate truth. Um, If I said I believe that the Bible is true because science has proven that everything that it says is true, my ultimate authority would no longer be the Bible because it would be science because that's how I proved it. Does that make sense? Um, uh, But science and reason shouldn't be our ultimate authority. That's not to say that it's, you know, faith against reason, which is oftentimes how it's portrayed. Um, if, If we do believe the true way, then, you know, science should support what is true, right? Um... But really any claim, when people say, you know, I believe in science and what man has proven, you know, so human reason, basically, I believe human reason is, you know, the ultimate authority of truth. Why do you believe that? Because it's reasonable to me, a human. You know, it's, it's circular reasoning any way you go. What am I getting at? Ultimately, it comes down to what you choose to believe. That's, that's ultimately where it's at. Um, Will you choose to accept Christ or will you choose to reject him? Will you choose to find truth and to believe the truth of the Bible or will you choose to abandon that truth? And that's, that's ultimately what it comes down to. It doesn't matter evidences, arguments. They're all good. But ultimately it comes down to what will you choose. Everyone has to make that choice whether they want to or not. 
Uh, now, I've ended on a bit of an evangelistic note, um, knowing how to answer the questions of non-believers when they come up. But in conclusion, uh, let me stress that Paul's teaching here is not only for those moments when we actually share the gospel with the lost. Uh, we're not only talking about, you know, open-air evangelism, mission trips, bike trip. Um, it's for the everyday, the nitty-gritty, the, the mundane interactions with non-believers. And indeed, oftentimes, evangelistic opportunities only arise when we get these everyday interactions right. Uh, we do that, in, in summary, by one, establishing relationships. We need to move towards non-believers and have sound judgment when it comes to our in, everyday interactions with them. Uh, we are here for their sake. We're here for them. We also need to, too, use our time, uh, take advantage of every opportunity that we get to serve Christ in the presence of non-Christians. Don't let anything of this earth, whether good, bad, or whatever, steal your affections and distract you from your true purpose. And three, we're supposed to speak gracious words. Our communication, both face-to-face and electronically, should always be full of grace and kindness. How we speak the truth matters. And if we do all this, then fourthly, we need to know how to answer. The lifestyle of Christ will surely open up opportunities to give good answers concerning the why, the what, the how of our faith. And we need to be ready for those questions. This instruction is for all Christians, uh, and I believe that we can all improve in our interactions with the unbelieving world Uh, Do you receive this church? I hope so. It's spoken to me, and I hope that I have presented that in a way you can understand. Um, I think we'll go ahead and bow your heads really quick. I believe we're going to be singing a closing song in a little bit. Um, And when we do that, uh, if you feel led by the Spirit and uh, just want to commit to more fruitful relationships, interactions uh, with your unbelieving friends, family, uh, you know, peers... I, you know, I could encourage you to come to the altar and do that, uh, or simply just like where you're at, um, let God know that that's what you're willing to do. Like, are you willing to commit today to what Paul has been teaching us here in the book of Colossians? Uh, so let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear God, I, just, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is true and that it is living and active and completely profitable for our everyday lives. Father, you know that this sermon was you know, aimed straight at myself the most. Um, and I just I pray that all of our relationships with non-believers would improve and that we would realize that we're here on this earth uh, to serve your purposes uh, and to reach out to a world with love and grace at all times. And just please, Lord, continue to work in our lives um, so that we may become more like you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.